Hey everybody, welcome back for episode 2. I wanted to move my request up top for your help in getting the word out about Serial Dater. If you have a minute and can leave a rating on iTunes, it'll fool the algorithm into telling other people about the show. And of course, you should also tell your friends and loved ones. You can also donate real money to the podcast by going to www.serialdaterpodcast.com and clicking the donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Previously on Serial Dater. The bad news, I'm single. The good news, dating is sometimes great. The bad news, I was living on the end of Long Island with few gay guys around to date. The good news, I got a Fulbright to go study in the United Kingdom, in Brighton, where there are a bunch of gays. The bad news, the first gay guy I met, Dan, had a boyfriend, who I sort of developed a small crush on. The good news, there were other gay guys, like Kieran, a cute, adorable nerd who lived a few hours away from Brighton. The bad news, after several dates, I realized that Kieran and I didn't have a great spark. The good news, there was still a British Isle full of eligible gentlemen just waiting for me. The bad news, I still have to find them. The good news, dating is sometimes great. The bad news, sometimes it's not. Okay, you're all up to date, no pun intended. If you remember back to season one, I spent a bit of time discussing how our brains rely on serialization in order to make sense of the world. By turning different events into episodes, stories with a beginning, middle, and end, our brains are able to capture and compartmentalize complicated events into manageable chunks. This might be a weird metaphor, but it's sort of like packing boxes for a move. Instead of just taking all your things and shoving them into a U-Haul, you put it in boxes so that you know, okay, here's the kitchen stuff, or okay, here are all my socks. Of course, any of us who've actually moved knows that that's not how boxes work. Yes, sure, sometimes you have a box that's all socks or all pots and pans, but usually you end up having to stick a random pair of snow pants in with the dishes, or a wayward coffee mug in the underwear box. All by way of saying that while the guys I went on dates with in season one settled out into discrete episodes, one happening after the other, these ones are a little more scattered and spread out. In fact, from here on out, it's a bit of a mess. In this box, for instance, there are a few smaller bits before we get to the main story. You might also remember from season one the scale of more and less preferable ways to meet people, or in this case, guys. Number one was public transportation serendipity, but number two was a friend's party. I've yet to meet someone through subway, airplane, or bus magic, but let me tell you about Halloween. To give you a little context, Halloween fell right between me and Kieran's fourth and fifth dates, but deep into the period of time where I was beginning to realize that there was not a great spark between us. And, being so acutely aware of the lack of spark, I was eager to find one. The party was at Dan's house. I'll probably need to draw you a diagram, but since this is a podcast, I'll just try and explain it slowly. You'll remember Dan from the last episode. He's the guy whose flat I looked at before I chose the one I ended up living in, and then hung out with him and his boyfriend John, and subsequently developed a very guilty crush on John. Oops. Due to a weird coincidence, several of my flatmates were also invited to the party. It turns out that one of Dan's roommates used to live in my current house. This is only an important detail insofar as I feel obliged to call out that I was not rolling up to a party full of strangers all by my lonesome. I had kind of shit the bed on a costume. I really like Halloween and the idea of dressing up, but 
Often my desire to have an original slash innovative costume will set the bar so high that in the end I don't have any ideas that make the cut. For this particular Halloween, someone had a simple eye mask that I'd thrown on. If I'm being brutally honest, there was a small part of me that was hoping to run into John again, but upon arrival I learned not only that John was not in attendance, but that he and Dan were having a rough time. This was probably the best for a number of reasons, but I can't say I wasn't initially slightly disappointed. Somewhere in there, for my semi-hazy recollection of the moment, I'm going to say it was between my second and third beer, I started talking to Sam. He was wearing a neatly cut suit with smudgy skull makeup, which had been painted on over a short, scruffy beard. He was funny and cute and had a nice smile. And before long, it was clear that the two of us were content chatting to each other to the exclusion of everyone else at the party. Sam had moved to Brighton a year earlier with a boyfriend, transferring his job at a retail shop that's kind of like a smaller version of anthropology. The job ended up having more staying power than the boyfriend, unfortunately, but he decided to stay in Brighton and ended up being made manager of his shop. Don't think I wasn't appreciating the magic of the moment. Sure, there was beer in play, but it was like a slow boil of, oh my god, I'm actually meeting a cute guy at a party and he seems to be into me. And then our chattiness seemed to get noticed, specifically by Sam's friend who had brought him to the party. Don't you have to go meet your Spanish boyfriend, Sam? He said, a slight edge in his voice. He's not my boyfriend, Sam replied, the three or four beers we'd shared so far audible in his voice. I clung to that sentence like it was a life preserver. But something did shift at that point. Sam polished off his beer and made ready to go. It was on the early side of late, maybe 12.30 or so, but once he'd left, my energy for the party seemed to go too. Of course, I forgot to ask for his contact info. There's a certain laziness that can come from the idea that you'll just be able to call up someone from the internet with nothing more than their first name and a little bit of nimble sleuthing. Sam wasn't on Facebook, or if he was, I couldn't find him. Where I did find him was Instagram, which in those way back days of 2015 did not have any way to chat with someone privately. I wasn't quite ready to comment publicly on one of his photos, though I think I might have liked a few. But I did have a way of getting in touch with him. I knew where he worked. For anyone who might be raising a judgy eyebrow at my approaching Sam at his place of employment, let me be clear. I was pretty terrified about the prospect of going into his store and talking to him, and it took some doing for me to get up the necessary courage. I somewhat embarrassingly went in once and asked if he was there, only to be told by a semi-amused girl behind the register that he wasn't working that day. On my second trip, I walked by two or three times, hoping to get a glimpse of him before I went in, and then when I did see him, I chickened out anew and kept walking. I lurked probably super creepily around a corner a few shops down from his, talking myself up for what promised at worst to be an obnoxious thanks but no thanks, and at best, well... The footprint of the store was pretty small, but it was densely packed with stuff so that if I had a sudden spastic flailing of the arms, I could cause damage to hundreds of pounds worth of merchandise. I stepped in, ready to walk right up and start talking to him, but just as I was walking up to him, he started helping out a customer. So I made as if I was just in there looking for... It was at this point that I realized that most of what the store sold was marketed to women. So a guy hanging out in there by himself, standing shiftily amongst the blouses and the motivational coffee mugs, probably looked creepy as fuck. I tried to even think about what I would want to buy if I were to buy something, 
as if I'd need to come up with a plausible alibi for why I was there. When, finally, Sam finished with his customer, and I went up to him. Hey, Sam, I said. He looked up and looked a little confused. I suppose I should have anticipated that he wouldn't readily recognize me. We were at a party, we were drinking. Now that I thought about it, we'd been wearing disguises. It's Charlie. No recognition. From the Halloween party? Finally, his face lit up. Thank God. Oh, of course. I didn't recognize you without your mask. I made some awkward joke about how I wasn't sure what he was going to look like without his face makeup on. Anyway, I said, I realized I didn't get your number or anything at the party, so I thought I'd come by and give you mine, and maybe if you wanted we could get a drink sometime. Yeah, that'd be great, he said, stepping over to the register and getting a scrap of paper, tearing it in half. We scribbled our numbers down and exchanged slips of paper and made a little small talk, during which time I managed to get the day of the week wrong. I left the shop unsure of where things stood, though armed with at least the base knowledge that he had some interest in hanging out with me again, and, I guess, as they say in my homeland, his digits. I got home and went up to my room and put Sam's cell phone number on my shelf and began to feel some anxiety over when I would text him and what I would say. How long should I wait? At least a day, maybe two? I didn't want to seem overeager. As I unzipped my jacket, though, my phone buzzed. Hey, it's Sam. Pretty sure I gave you my old number. For fuck's sake, today's been a brain-hurting day for sure. Ha, no problem. I almost wrote down my American number, which would have been pretty useless. Rest of work okay? I do it all the time. I'm so annoying. Yeah, not bad, actually. When is good for you to go for a drink? In case you were wondering what my thoughts were at this point, they were this. Damn, bro, cutting straight to the chase. I like it. I could do Saturday, though you might be a happening person who has exciting Saturday night plans already. Well, no. (laughs) I'm free Saturday, though I work till 6.15. But after? Yeah, that'd be great. Sweet. I'll think of a pub we can frequent. And just like that, I had a real-life date with a real-life boy who I met in real life and who I was kind of into. I'm really Charlie Beckerman, and this is Serial Dater, UK edition. It's just Episode 2, The Firestarter. The Spanish boyfriend was lingering at the background of my excitement for my date with Sam. The way Sam's friend had brought him up at the party, with a relishing delight, the way an evil stepsister will disclose an embarrassing truth to a potential suitor, simultaneously made it seem like a ploy, a desperate move of jealousy, but also gave it an ominous weight. Trying to gauge the availability of a guy is something I've always struggled with. The way I operated for years and years was that either they were single or they weren't. Either they were interested or they weren't. Either they were geographically viable or they weren't. Either they were gay or they weren't. Of course, the mind-numbingly infuriating reality of the situation is that all of these measures are not binary. I've made out with guys who at the beginning of the day I'd thought were straight. I'd had a couple of guys tell me they were, quote, seeing someone else, which I took as a breakup line, but maybe they didn't exactly mean it that way. I've known guys who were probably interested enough to keep things vague, but when I ponied up real feelings, vanished in a puff of smoke. The long and short of it was that I was going into my date with Sam with a bit of a head-down, barreling-forward kind of mentality. There were plenty of red flags, but hello? But hello? 
Here was a real-life boy who, if I were to get married, I wouldn't have to explain swiping left and right to my grandmother in order to tell her how we met. Of course, my grandmother's already listened to episode one, so she already understands. I caught up with him at work just as his shift was ending on Saturday. The store had closed and he and his employees, a trio of girls in their early 20s who all giggled at Sam flirtatiously, were locking up. Observation number one. When you've already met the person you're going on the first date with, the meeting up protocol is weirdly way more casual. There was no need to decide whether to shake hands or hug or do nothing. You just say hi and walk to your pub. Our pub that night was the Wick Inn. I've already waxed poetic about the beauty of the English pub, but let me go just a little farther in my waxing. There is a new fad amongst pubs in the UK where, instead of serving traditional pub fare, they will have colluded with a local Thai restaurant to serve Thai food. For many people, this is a tarnishing of the proper pub. And while I'm sure that's true, there's something lovely about ordering a pint and tucking into a plate of pad thai. Still, despite its Thai menu, the Wick Inn was definitely on the hipper end of the pub spectrum. The lighting was moody and the cocktails were designer, with several designer gins, though both of us got pints. I asked about his day, he asked about mine. We recovered the basics from the party, getting his Brighton origin story in a little more detail, giving him mine. Things were going pretty well. We were having good rat-a-tat, I was making him laugh, he was making me laugh, and I was starting to get that warm, rosy, radiating feeling in my chest. Always a dangerous sign. After we finished our first pint and I went to get the second round, he pulled a birthday card out of his satchel. I'm sorry, he said, but I've completely forgotten to send my brother a birthday card. Do you mind if I write it real quick? This maybe should have been my first real red flag that things were not quite what they seemed, But that warm, rosy, radiating chest feeling is a powerful drug, and there's a certain willingness, that is, a dangerous predisposition, to overlook warning signs. In my high-on-love mind, I saw it simply as an opportunity to ask about his brother. It turned out he was a doctor and also was gay. He was married and had just bought a house in the suburbs of London. Despite the fact that Sam and his brother were both gay, they didn't have an extremely close relationship. What should I say? He asked. I'm not sure, I said. I don't know what it's like to have a gay older brother. I can't even really imagine what it's like not being the only gay person in my family. It was weird wording and syntax, so I understood how it took him a second to process it. His brow furrowed. You're gay? I looked at him, trying to decipher whether or not he was having me on, but it didn't appear that he was. Uh, yeah, I said. Isn't this a date? I didn't think it was. A more awkward silence there has never been. I ransacked my brain for our conversation at the Halloween party, where I was sure I dropped my sexuality in various and sundry ways. I even tried to figure out how I learned that Sam was gay. Was it the mention of the Spanish boyfriend? And realized that most of the night's discussion was lost to alcohol. Even worse, I wasn't sure what the proper protocol was at this point. Were we even still on a date? Were we ever on a date? Does this story even now count for serial later? I felt like I'd lured him there under false pretenses, and that the gentlemanly thing to do was to give him an escape hatch. Plus, the Spanish boyfriend or whatever knifed into my mind with terrifying clarity. Was this a drink that Sam would not have agreed to knowing that I had untoward intentions? Was I preying on a taken man? Again? So, do you want to go? I asked. 
No, he said, though with an edge that said, not necessarily. We finished our pint at the wick and headed elsewhere. I feel like we must have gone to another pub, but I can't for the life of me remember where we stopped off. I've tried to piece the evening together with bank statements and text messages. We met at his work at 6.30. At 8.17, I messaged Fatih, saying, Ha ha, my date thought I was straight and didn't think it was a date. Laughing with tears emoji, grimace emoji, sobbing emoji. I messaged her again at 11 p.m. I'm still hanging out with him. I'm forgetting rom-com rules. Is this still a date? There are only about four or five hundred pubs between where we were drinking in Hove and where I next remember us being. There's a weird strip of gay bars along the Brighton seafront that I'd had only a passing acquaintance with. We ended up at a bar called Envy, which looks like a bar that was designed in the late 90s and hasn't been updated since, a cross between 10 Forward from Star Trek The Next Generation and a disco bowling alley. Sam and I ended up on what I can only describe as a very large ottoman. I suppose one could call it a bed, but we were definitely sitting on some sort of cushion, not a mattress. We got our beers. Is it possible that we drank Coors Light? That seems unlikely in England, but then I think by this point in the evening I'd had a lot to drink. The conversation had continued past the awkward swerve of, is this a date, and rested comfortably in the, "Uh uh-oh, we're clearly attracted to one another, but that makes things more complicated rather than less. Because, I don't mean to disappoint you guys, but as much as I can be judgmental, pedantic, and rude, I'm not enough of an asshole to just kiss a guy who may possibly have a boyfriend without his permission. Not on the lips, anyway. At some point, I got the story on this other guy. They've been dating for three months, and they were right on the cusp of being exclusive. I didn't get a lot of details, understandably, and also don't have a ton of personal experience to draw upon here, but I guess in my mind, the switch from brackets dating to brackets exclusive happens in one of three ways. One, the official talk. One partner says to the other that they'd like to be exclusive, and the other agrees. Two, the exclusive by default. Exclusivity evolves more because any other dating possibilities fall by the wayside, and things are just becoming more domestic-y anyway. Three, the vortex of love. Upon meeting, neither person can conceive of ever sleeping with anyone else ever again. Asterisk, I'm not sure this happens anymore, but who knows. Sam served up a sentence that I had heard before, and frankly, in the pessimistic sobriety of the present, I never know whether to believe or not. If only I'd met you three months ago. He said this while looking into my eyes, which like, yeah, if only. I suppose the problem with that sentence is that it can mean so many things. If only I met you before I met this guy I'm with now, I would choose you over him. If only I met you before, you would be a serious contender. If I wasn't seeing this current soulmate, you'd totally be fine to make out with. At a certain point, my gentlemanly restraint began to flag. At nearly one in the morning, when he was in the loo, I messaged Fatih, he's trying very hard not to make out with me, and I feel like a dick for tempting him. We finally headed home shortly thereafter, at least five hours after he found out that I had designs on him. He walked me most of the way home, but we parted ways around the corner from my house. We hugged goodbye, and then, at the very last minute, he didn't protest a closed-mouth kiss on the lips. I was a little sad that it was going to come in just shy of making out, but also was happy to take what I could get. He texted me not long after I got home. Hey man, you okay? You got home alright? Yes, I was literally around the corner from my place. Are you okay? Did you get home alright? I'm still about 15 minutes away. Wish I was home. You're a good guy. We should hang out again. X. We texted for a little while longer. I asked him to text me when he got home, which he forgot to do, 
But in the meantime, we exchanged Instagram accounts and performed the semi-formal ritual of back-liking a bunch of Instagram posts. Sam was heading out of town, if I remember correctly, to Spain with the Spanish boyfriend, and so I said he should get in touch with me when he got back. I'm normally kind of wary about leaving the ball so firmly in someone else's court, but in this case, it seemed like the only correct way to go about this whole complicated situation was to let Sam make the decision to still want to hang out with me, knowing what he knew now. I'd like to hang out again as well. Can't promise to behave any better, though. You naughty git. I'll speak to you soon. I only saw him one more time before I left Brighton, but that's a story for another day. After things concluded with Kieran, the dating front quieted down a bit for a few weeks. It must have been like I was saving up for something, because once again, without really meaning to, I ended up planning three first dates for one week. You know what? Let's dust off the old theme song. I was kind of more aware than I needed to be of repeating my serial dater past, but also had found all three of these guys charming. Tim was a kindergarten teacher who looked like a fashion model. We'd actually crossed dating app paths when I'd first gotten to Brighton. Is it possible we met on OkCupid for the first time? But spotty communication had kept us from meeting up until now. If memory serves, we eventually connected on Grindr because, in fact, we didn't live that far away from one another. I've tried to resurrect Tim in my digital records to no avail, so sad to say, this one is going to be based entirely on my spotty memory. Our decision to meet up was kind of spur of the moment. Neither of us had plans that Wednesday evening, so after dinner he suggested we meet up at a pub called The Reservoir, which was sort of tucked away on a residential street in the middle of a block. Being midweek, it was kind of tame, and like the first pub I'd gone to with Sam, they served Thai food so the place smelled of spring rolls and peanut sauce. Tim directed us to a secluded area on a lower level, which we had pretty much to ourselves. Tim was blonde and had a crop of golden curls on top of his head, the sides shaved. Several of his pics had been of him posing at parties, but the one that had convinced me to go on a date with him was one of him in his classroom, his students having wrapped him in wrapping paper like a giant present. Still, he didn't look like your average kindergarten teacher, and within a few moments of chatting with him, he didn't sound much like one either. He spoke about his students with a kind of begrudging affection, almost as if he'd been tricked into getting a teaching certificate and working with five-year-olds. In fact, this thing that I had sort of ended up liking him the most for had been in fact the thing he was interested in the least. Instead, he spent a lot of time talking about his previous career in, you guessed it, fashion. He had worked at Topshop, in case you're listening somewhere in the States that doesn't have Topshop yet, it's kind of like Forever 21, I think? Before he'd left, he'd sort of started to climb the corporate ladder. One weekend, we went to the owner's private jet and flew to New York to have cocktails at the Soho Hotel. He told me, as if he was talking about going to catch a movie on a Friday night. I did my best to affect interest. All of those things sounded abstractly fun, I guess, but the real appeal was flying on a private jet, less because of the status it afforded and more because they just looked really cool. Tim talked about his life before he started teaching the same way a former college football star will recall his heyday years before he became a local car salesman. So why'd you leave? I asked. The way he described it, his time in fashion had been the nirvana of a slightly bitchy gay amongst a bunch of girls who laughed at every cutting remark. To my memory, he wasn't entirely sure. It just wasn't for me anymore. 
By far, the most interesting thing we discussed was the town in Ireland where he came from. It's really close to the border, and every few decades they have a big fight about whether we're part of Northern Ireland or the Republic. He had a UK passport, but could have gotten an EU one easily enough if he'd wanted. I didn't feel a terribly good connection with him, but after two pints we started making out, and I invited him back to my place. As we got into it, and out of our clothes, I realized that even though he fit the description of a hot guy, we were also not quite connecting on a sexual level. His model-like angularity came off as kind of pointy in bed. While we kept things relatively chaste, it was a first date after all, I sort of had a sense that there was not going to be a repeat performance. I suppose here is as good a place as any to think about protocol for turning someone down for a second or third or fifth date, which I was surprised to find Tim was interested in, asking if we could meet up again the next week. In general, it is my firm belief that ghosting, that is, expressing disinterest by failing to reply back to someone, is a coward's way out. What I sort of believed, and sometimes still talk myself into, is that the one time it is acceptable is after a first date, and it is for this reason. It's pretty clear what the ghosting means. I've even heard it argued that ghosting on a first or second date is a kinder move than a I just wasn't feeling it text. Even if we know exactly what it was about the other person we didn't quite connect with, it's unclear whether spelling it out for them is constructive. So I ghosted on Tim. In retrospect, I can only see this as, if not an outright dick move, then one that I certainly should have risen above. Not because it was the done thing, but because to quote, uh, checks notes, Gandhi, we should be the change we wish to see in the world. Instead, I was just another douchebag. And even worse, it would have been so easy not to be. The next date from that week was a guy named Joey, who jokingly went by Joe and was thoroughly charming. He spoke at length about his long-term relationship with the Domino's Pizza across the street from his house, nicknamed Pete's, so I guess it was just a long-term relationship with pizza more generally. And his commitment to the bit was strong. He sent me a picture of him in bed looking longingly at a slice of pepperoni. Pete's is everything to me, he wrote. Can't you see the deep emotional connection? It seems a little lopsided, I replied. True love. You're way too invested. Too much baggage, eh? Maybe Pete's would be up for a triad. A triad? Yeah. We get a house together, adopt some Asian babies, and all live together. You, me, and Pete's. OMG, can we get this one? He sent a picture of a Chinese toddler cosplaying as Chun-Li from Street Fighter and giving a peace sign. We met up for a drink on Friday, though I was slightly hobbled, feeling the beginnings of a cold and having done something to my back, believe it or not, during my fumble with Tim. I told Joey that I'd slept on it funny. We had a delightful time at the Temple Bar, where we talked about RuPaul's Drag Race and his own drag career. Last Pride, I got all the way down to the festival in full drag, only to have one of my heels break ten minutes after arriving, he said, his face alight with the memory. Did you go back? Hell no! I just went barefoot the rest of the day. Halfway through the date, I realized with clarity that I really liked Joey, but only as a friend. It was a strange sensation. 
Normally, I feel like when I realize I'm not that into a guy, in season one of Serial Dater, I called it a click, it's because I'm just not into them all the way around. Joey, on the other hand, was funny and charming and witty, and I just didn't want to sleep with him. It probably would have been, and maybe would still be, intellectually worthwhile to explore what it was exactly about him that weakened my keenness. Was it that he was more femme? Possibly. My gut tells me it was something a little more nuanced. He was someone I could see myself having fun with for an evening, but perhaps not for a weekend. There was no transition from camp into earnestness. We were compatible to go three rounds in the pub, but, as it turned out, not for a second date. I walked him part of the way home and we made out briefly on the street, but that was all. We chatted a bit over the coming days, but when he left one of my messages unreturned, I never followed up. And that, my friends, was that. A classic 2-2 no-second-date situation. I felt a little bit like I was slipping back into my old ways with my dates with Joey and Tim. Too many new guys in too short a time. There was a kind of efficiency to it, I guess, but there was also a short-shriftedness as well. Even my brief making out with Joey on the street had a kind of, this is nice, but is it nice enough, quality to it. Before I go on, though, I have to discuss something else with you. Tonsils. Back when I was a sophomore in college, and coincidentally when I was dating the guy who I wish had showed me more stuff, I came down with mono, or what I learned in the UK is exotically called glandular fever. In the intervening 13 years, I would get sporadic sore throats, and in a fairly slipshod approach to my own health, over the years, I treated these sore throats, which sometimes came with fever, lethargy, or just general out-of-itness, with varying levels of antibiotics, tea, cough drops, cough syrup, homeopathic remedies, and the time-honored classic of just pretending that eventually it would go away. During my time in New York, I'd come down with one of these sore throats maybe two or three times a year. In Tallahassee, it went up to four or five. In the UK, I was up to getting knocked sideways by sore throats every six weeks. I had various theories on what triggered these illnesses. Stress was one. The number of times I could feel the itch at the back of my throat starting just as I was getting towards some exciting or momentous event was striking. Whatever it was, I felt, even as I was wrapping up my date with Joey, that maybe something was coming. What was the momentous event? Let's finally get to this episode's main man, Robbie. Robbie was another Tinder catch, though to this day I remain unsure of how he crossed one another's paths. He was living at the time in Dorset, which was an hour further away from Brighton than Portsmouth. We connected in early December, a couple weeks after I ended things with Kieran. The first thing you should know about Robbie is that he's very cute. So when he messaged me first, I was kind of surprised. Hey Charlie, how's your weekend going? Up to much? It appears I, for my part, was hungover. Hi there, Robbie. Weekend is going okay, though woke up just on the wrong side of a hangover. So to answer your second question, I'm just rolling around in bed. The chat was light but sweet, and we exchanged the standard refrains of what we were doing with our lives. I told him about studying and writing, and I asked him where he lived. I'm living in Dorset at the moment for work, but not a big fan of the place, so don't think I'll stick around there for long. 
He asked me about my novel, which I tend to undersell to anyone who inquires about it. I suppose at some point I will have to fix this tendency, but it helps lower people's expectations that they might be able to, you know, read any of my work anywhere. Once I've ascertained that someone is cute and witty, my usual move is to try and get a real-life date locked in as soon as possible, without seeming desperate. Got any trips back east planned? I asked. That is, towards Brighton. As it turned out, he did, the following weekend. He was going to be in Portsmouth that Saturday and asked if I wanted to hang out on Sunday. We searched for a halfway point where we might meet, and he suggested Chichester, which is how he earned the title from my friend Nathan, Mr. Chichester. Yeah, that'd be lovely, I said. I'm already absorbing Britishisms. In American, I'd have said, that'd be awesome, and then go surfing. That'd be awesome, he replied. I mean, how utterly charming. By the time Sunday rolled around, I was definitely sure I was not feeling well, but was too nervous to cancel the date. First dates are often like fragile, delicate objects, and if anything happens to derail them, they can break easily. Better to make the connection, barrel through, and hope that I didn't want to make out, even though I really like making out. I stopped in a Boots pharmacy on my way to the train station and asked the pharmacist if she could recommend anything better than cough drops and ibuprofen. She handed me a box of strange medicine I'd never heard of, that one was supposed to suck on and which contained a very mild antibiotic. I got on the train and placed the yellow tablet on my tongue and tried to will myself to feel better. Between my willpower, the mystery medicine, and the four painkillers I took, go big or go home, I say, I sort of felt better by the time I rolled into Chichester. Robbie met me just outside the ticket barriers, leaning casually up against the wall. Unlike Kieran, Robbie had some feelings about how to dress wearing fitted jeans and a very comfortable-looking cowl-neck hoodie. This, by the way, was another day date, which sort of seemed like the go-to option when meeting up for the date required major intershire train travel. Chichester is technically a city because it has a 12th-century cathedral, and back in the day, the cities that got to be called cities were the ones that had cathedrals. Really, it more closely resembles your slightly larger standard English town, with a busy city center complete with more or less the same chain stores as you would find in most other English towns. This isn't an altogether unpleasant pattern. Most of these towns have large pedestrian streets with cafes that have outdoor seats, street vendors selling crafts from kiosks. Since this was the last weekend before Christmas, the town center was in high shopping mode, with people bustling with large bags and children throwing temper tantrums outside coffee shops, We walked side by side in and out of the throngs of people with a kind of unencumbered ease. So, he asked, what did you do yesterday? What I had done yesterday was finally give in to my desire to have an acoustic guitar around to futz with when I was feeling my feelings. I had found a guy in Hove who was getting rid of a guitar for 15 pounds and had bought it without really looking that closely at it. I had figured that I was going to have to replace the strings, but there was a missing tuning peg, and those aren't things you can really just swap out, so I had to buy a whole new set of machine heads. Still, taking out the old one and installing the new one proved to be, if not easy, fairly straightforward, and I got the guitar to sound more or less like a guitar and not like a bag of change falling down a staircase. There's something stupidly satisfying about just, like, fixing something yourself, I said. I asked about his weekend in South Sea. Mostly spent it at the pub with my uni mates, he said. It was fun. Robbie had gone to university in Portsmouth, and it seemed that mostly he regretted that he no longer lived there. I had so far only really seen the shopping mall centre of Portsmouth and so had no understanding of the hipper South Sea area. It's great, Robbie said. You should definitely check it out. Nathan had told me about a pub in Chichester that was supposed to have good eats, 
the crate and apple, so we walked out there even though it took us most of the way out of the center. It was a Sunday, and for those of you in America who don't know, pubs in the UK serve a fairly serious midday meal on Sundays called a Sunday roast. And upon arriving at the Crate and Apple at 11.30, at which point it was about 80% empty, we were told that they were booked solid all afternoon. It's always a bit rough to not get seated at an establishment when they have plenty of space. It feels almost like they just don't like you. And maybe they don't. We made our way back into town and ended up in something that felt like a cross between a Panera, a pub, and a club med called Belle Isle. It was a chain restaurant that looked like it had several iterations, including a breakfast-lunch walk-up service, a bar, table service dinner, and what may or may not have been a dance floor. They also had a kids' section with tiny chairs and tables and lots of kids' books and games. It is for this reason and this reason alone that I learned a crucial piece of information. Robbie had a loyalty card with the restaurant and used his perks to get me a free cup of coffee. What a gentleman! And when they had trouble looking up his account, he had to give the barista his last name, which will be semi-important later. Throughout, the chat was easy and breezy. We didn't want for discussion topics. We discussed the go-to Tinder pictures, which in the UK included snorkeling and photos of guys in tuxes in front of estate houses. Why do so many guys have those? I asked, clueless. Are people going to lavish hunting weekends like in Downton Abbey? Can I get invited to one? Most of those are weddings, he said, grinning. Nobody goes to those kinds of places for any other reason. Chichester is such an old town that it was a player back when England was invaded by the Romans, and one of the parks has recreated Roman walls that you can walk on top of. It was a pretty nice day for December, and we were having a nice time just walking around and talking, Robbie patiently listening as I ranted about my recent visit to Oxford and how lovely all the colleges were on the inside, and how menacing the walls were when you were outside them. We continued over to the 12th century cathedral, which had just let out its Sunday service. The Anglican priest, a sweet-looking woman, smiled at us warmly as we walked in. We meandered in a mostly respectful silence, leaning over to crack a joke to one another when we were fairly sure no one else could hear us. She looks like she wants a cuddle, and he's like, Here, take my hand, Robbie said, referring to a tomb on which a couple had been sculpted, the woman leaning towards the man who could not seem less interested in spending eternity with her. In one corner of the cathedral, the floor had been replaced with plexiglass to reveal an impressive restored bit of Roman mosaic sidewalk. So the cathedral builder was like, Nice sidewalk, but I was planning on putting a massive church here, so sorry. Having seen the sights of Chichester, we thought we might do a little exploring along the coast. We climbed into Robbie's car and headed south. For those of you who are American drivers and have never had the pleasure of riding shotgun in a left-side-of-the-road vehicle, let me tell you, it can be uniquely unsettling. I definitely more than once stamped on the floor of the wheel well where by all rights there should have been a break. We drove to a local National Trust park called East Head, just near West Wittering. By the way, every village in England sounds impossibly English. If you're ever bored, I encourage you to just open up Google Maps and scroll around the English countryside. It won't disappoint. We walked along the beach, which was windy and kind of freezing, but the sunlight was nice, and hey, I was with a cute guy. There were several other people also walking on the head. But at one point, when we got to the edge of the little sandy peninsula we were walking on, we had a moment of solitude, and I planted a kiss on his cheek. I took an Instagram picture of the view from that spot. What can I say? I'm a bit of a romantic. The star is all
After East Head, we drove from West Wittering to East Wittering and found a seaside pub called The Shore Inn, which on the pub scale was a bit more down home with carpets and cheesy holiday decorations. Robbie was driving, so just had half a cider, and I thought I was feeling well enough for a pint. We kept chatting easily. I wasn't bored, and I wasn't eager to go. I wasn't sure what the other patrons of the pub made of us, but also, I didn't care. As the sun disappeared, the weather got a little worse, and so we drove back to Chichester and ducked into a Bill's, another curious yet pervasive restaurant chain in the UK. Bill's is more like a corporate gastropub, staged to look like it could be the set from Rent. I should mention that at this point in the year, which, now that I actually look at the calendar, we were only one day shy of the winter solstice, the sun was setting at 3 p.m. on the south coast of England. It was probably just 4 o'clock when we stumbled into Bill's, ever so slightly rain-spritzed. The restaurant was at a lull between lunch and dinner, and we had ourselves a secluded table in our own section of the restaurant. The fog of my illness was descending back around my head, and I considered taking another painkiller, or one of my strange sucking pills, but I didn't want to tip my hand that I wasn't feeling well, and wasn't operating with enough acuity to realize that I could just go to the bathroom. At some point, a waiter placed a candle on our table. Robbie started putting the screws to me about my novel, which I hadn't been working on as much as I wanted to. That is, I hadn't been working on it really at all. I was complaining about how I was struggling with the point of view of the novel, whether to have it be from one character's perspective or from multiple characters' perspectives. I even considered trying to make the point of view something abstract and inanimate. I think you need a magical element, Robbie said. What if there was a mind-reading rat? He could be your point-of-view character and just read everyone's minds for the different POVs. I was fairly sure he wasn't serious, but he had a pretty good poker face and a dry sense of humour. You could name him after me, Robbie the Mind-Reading Rat. At Bill's, we split their fancy dessert version of a Jaffa cake, which involves cake, jam, and chocolate, and is actually pretty good normally, but is especially good when all of a sudden ice cream and chocolate sauce are involved. When it was finally time for my train, he walked me to the station. My anxiety about what to do re-kissing and infecting him was yammering in my head, though most of my energy at this point was going towards trying not to faint. Outside the station, we stopped and hugged, and finally, semi-impulsively, I planted a closed-mouth kiss on his lips. I felt like, had I pursued it, some brief making out would have been welcomed, but he didn't push it, so I thought I'd let him off the hook and run away before whatever disease I had could sneak past his own immune system. By the time I got off my train in Brighton, I was definitely feverish. Also, due to our weird food day, we'd managed not to have dinner, so I stopped at a Chinese takeaway spot and got the spiciest vegetable soup they had and staggered home. I swallowed another dose of ibuprofen and five minutes later could feel the fever break as clearly as if someone had poured a bucket of water over my head. Dating around the holidays is kind of a dangerous proposition. It carries risks of elevated emotion, depressed response rate, and extra pressure applied implicitly and explicitly by spending extra time with family. Normally, a date right before Christmas would be almost kind of a placeholder. I went on a couple dates with a guy in Tallahassee right before we both split town for the holidays, and in grad school this meant a three-week interval. The dates were good, superlative even, 
But as we parted ways, I found myself unable to put my feelings on hold. I lived and died with every text he sent me, including an utterly adorable one of him with one of his prized Christmas gifts, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hoodie where the front is the chest of one of the turtles, by far one of the most charming pictures any boy has ever sent me. By the time we got back to Tallahassee, though, something was off, and I'm going to go ahead and say it was my eagerness. And by Martin Luther King Day, he was suggesting we should just be friends. So following my successful date with Robbie on December 20th in Chichester, I was more or less anticipating to have to hold my breath until after the holidays. But, okay, after I made it clear that I wouldn't be up to much between Christmas and New Year's, Robbie suggested we hang out in the interim. Lovely jubbly, which is a real phrase that real British people say unironically. There was a certain amount of vagueness to the plan, which, as you can imagine, I started to stress out about way sooner than was necessary. I reported to Fatih that he was a slow texter, but I have no way of verifying that independent of my feelings-enveloped former self because, well, you guys, I have terrible news. For some reason, which I will address later on, I believe I deleted a whole chunk of texting data, which includes all of my texts with Robbie. In fact, the whole run of texts from mid-December to mid-January is frustratingly choppy. I know that relying heavily on texts to support my own memory is a sloppy way to go about things, but in an age where I've come to rely more and more on everything being automatically saved, coming up against a massive loss of data is somewhat... eerie. With Robbie, from here on out, I have to use my refracted reporting to Fatih, along with my own sketchy memory, to figure out what was happening when. I spent Christmas with my friend John and his family in a town called Havent, a suburb of Portsmouth, which I learned is affectionately called Pompey. I also learned that on Christmas, literally nothing in Britain is open, except for the pub, which may be open for an hour or two in the afternoon. But like, trains and buses don't run on a Sunday schedule, they just don't run. Also, they set their Christmas dessert on fire and screen a zillion movies on TV, which is how I ended up getting to watch both Sister Act 1 and 2. I'd only ever experienced one Boxing Day before, and that was in Canada, where Boxing Day is reserved for insane after-Christmas sales. In the UK, it seems that everything was still closed, which is how we ended up getting to watch both Die Hard 1 and 2. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Other fun facts about British Christmas. They all love and know by heart A Muppet Christmas Carol, which features a very fresh-looking Michael Caine playing Scrooge. With a thankful heart, with an endless joy, with a growing family, every girl and boy will be nephew and niece to me. Nephew and niece to me. We'll bring love, hope, and peace to me. Love, hope, and peace to me. Yes, and every night. And the Queen's speech is delightful and one of the only unironic expressions of Christianity that I can handle. Despite being displaced and persecuted throughout his short life, Christ's unchanging message was not one of revenge or violence, but simply that we should love one another. As a further indictment of my overreaction to Robbie's slow response to texts, I appear to have simultaneously complained to Fatih that Robbie wasn't getting back to me only to report moments later that he had gotten back to me. Apparently, my gripe was that his responses weren't instantaneous. I sent him a drunk text Christmas Eve, what could I have possibly said, which he didn't respond to until Christmas morning. When he did respond, he did not address my request to make plans, 
and I quietly, privately moped through several hours until that evening when he texted saying he'd like to come to Brighton. Apparently, there was further complaining on my part that he hadn't told me when he wanted to come to Brighton, only to find out that the next day he'd said he'd come on December 29th. This underscores a deeper anxiety that has threaded its way through my entire romantic existence. The idea that in any dating situation, one person is worried about getting stuck with the other, and the other person is worried about being the person the other is worried about getting stuck with. Wow, that was a mouthful. This harkens back to the percentage problem in Master of None, that sometimes it feels like the only way for any relationship to work is if you're both equally committed to it to the exact same degree, which, is that even possible? Certainly not over any meaningful period of time. But the anxiety has another layer to it, which is that we want our relationships to be easy and relaxing and straightforward. Why couldn't I just trust that Robbie was in the middle of his own Christmas activities? And unlike me, an American Jew who had latched onto a friend's family for Christmas, he was dealing with his own family. There's a song that Fatih and I are big fans of by the singer Autre Neveu called Play by Play from the appropriately titled album Anxiety. In the song, the singer encapsulates the feeling I was having pretty tidily. Fortunately, I've already contributed to this song's Genius.com explication page, a sample from my ramblings. As the title of the album implies, the song is about the anxiety of connection to a lover, one who I think we could infer is pulling away from the speaker. The song is full of anxiety about how close the speaker feels to this lover, repeating, don't ever leave me 10 times in various ways throughout. This line speaks to the intimacy that the speaker craves from his partner, simultaneously casual, I just called you up, and constant, to get that play-by-play-by-play. As opposed to the above annotation, which suggests that this line is focused on the future of the relationship, I think that the song revolves around a failing, or at least insufficient, present in the relationship. Even the Gertrude Stein-like repetition of play-by-play-by-play seems to evoke a sense of the absurd in the speaker's desire to be fully integrated into his beloved's life. Let's just say that Autre Neveu got a lot of airtime that Christmas. I got back to Brighton on December 27th, giving myself two days to get my life in order and put in a little time on my term papers before Robbie showed up. My house, which normally was home to five people, was empty, which meant I had a lot of time on my hands, which is how I'm going to excuse the fact that I ended up Googling Robbie. The fact that I hadn't after immediately learning his last name at the cafe in Chichester is, I think, a testament to my restraint. The first hit was a link to a Central European television channel, and there, performing for the first round of tryouts for the local equivalent of American Idol, was my dear, lovely Robbie. He was holding an acoustic guitar and singing, looking very soulful and a little terrified. The judges had skeptical looks on their faces, and one of them, some douchebag in a 1950s varsity jacket, coughed while Robbie was singing, which I found weirdly enraging. Anyway, I went ahead and listened to the original version of the song he was covering, and I decided I liked Robbie's better. I realized, though, that if Robbie had had any inclination to similarly Google me, he would have found Serial Dater Season 1, not to mention all the other shit that I've written on the internet. Kieran had responded to all of it well enough, positively, we might even say. 
but it was like a whole new coming out process looming in front of me, and I realized it would be that way with every new guy I went on a date with. Apparently, my anxiety about Robbie showing up extended all the way to the moment he texted me from his car as he was leaving his mother's house in Dorset, saying he'd arrive in Brighton around 3 p.m. I took a kind of strange pleasure in preparing for his arrival, from cleaning my room to procuring the parking permit that would keep his car from getting towed. When he texted me saying that he was there, I nearly fell down the stairs as I rushed to the door. I was embarrassingly excited. I've been scouring my brain trying to remember where all we went, all I said to Fatih was that we got drinks and dinner, but anything beyond that is lost. After we left my house, the next clear memory I have is the two of us walking up Prince Albert Street, and me pointing out the pub that author Graham Greene used to hang out in. He wrote Brighton Rock, which I still haven't read, I said. You know, Graham Greene wrote another book about Brighton, where everyone was trying to get the people of Brighton to band together to fight off the invaders. It was called Right On, Brighton. I have a high tolerance for bad puns, thanks to my grandmother Gloria and my siblings Bernie and Anna, but a bad pun coming from a guy I was actively crushing on was a strange but not unpleasant feeling. I leaned in and gave Robbie a kiss on the cheek, and then said, that was horrible. We ended up at a pub called the Fiddler's Elbow, where we impulsively joined their pub quiz and performed rather atrociously, but it obviously didn't matter. I gave him a hard time when he didn't know anything about European sports, and then we got a question about baseball, which I couldn't answer, so it all evened out. We cuddled in a booth as the questions were called out, and I asked him about his New Year's plans. I'm not sure. A friend of mine in Cambridge is having a party, but I figured I'd just see how things went. He did not say, see how things went here, or even see how things went with you. The exact data of his statement was, I haven't made any decisions about anything. But what my mind immediately jumped to was... If things go well here, maybe I'll just spend New Year's with you. This possibility was kind of a big deal. There's a sustained stress to being chronically single that's most of the time manageable, but there are two times of the year when being single, or perhaps better phrasing is not having someone, feels especially acute. I don't know how many of you will be able to relate to this, maybe all of you, but the lack of a partner on Valentine's Day and on New Year's Eve can feel like a laceration. Robbie's unintentional, implicit, and possibly imagined suggestion that he might stay for New Year's was too exciting to even fully contemplate. I had to actively try to stuff my expectations back into whatever pressure release container they had been in, but of course they wouldn't go. By this point, it was pretty clear that we weren't going to win the pub quiz, or even really place in the top 10 teams, and so we abandoned our answer sheet and headed back to Brewer Street. Robbie was an excellent kisser, and once I had him in my bedroom, I felt a certain eagerness on my part that I hadn't realized was there. Robbie was the first guy in a long time who I had feelings for, and who I was now making out with, and who was now in my bedroom. There was a kind of mutability to my aims for our night. Sure, it would have been nice to have sex, though we hadn't talked about it. But also, I was up for just some making out and junk. Or is it making out with junk? Unclear. Clothes came off, and at a certain point, I thought maybe all the clothes would come off. But somewhere in there, Robbie drew a line in the sand just short of losing our underwear. I'm kind of a prude, he said. That's okay, I replied back. In retrospect, 
Maybe that would have been a good moment to stop things, to take a second, catch our breaths, and find out exactly what he meant. But I think I was also tapping into a low-level underlying belief that it might be something about me. When I say low-level, I mean very low-level, as in I don't know if I even considered it in the moment. Instead, we went to sleep, and I remember feeling content, excited that we'd get to spend the next day together. I don't know what time it was exactly, but let's call it 2.30 a.m. We'd been asleep for a few hours, and I woke up shivering. Staying warm in the UK is kind of a constant challenge in my mind. Houses, especially older houses like ours, can get kind of cold and damp. It's kind of amazing to see the great efforts that were gone to in the architecture to keep houses warm. Chimneys rising in quartets and sextets, trying to give each room in the house a way to have a warming fire. So the fact of my shivering was not immediately upsetting. And I was prepared. I had a space heater that I often slept with on. Don't worry, it had a safety thing. It had been warm in my room when we went to sleep, what from the fooling around and all, which is why I hadn't turned it on before. But I leaned over Robbie, who I thought was asleep, and flicked it on. What are you doing? Robbie whispered. Sorry, it's just freezing in here. I wanted to turn on the heater. Freezing? I'm boiling! He replied. I thought about it for a second. Usually the house heat did kick on in the middle of the night. I guess I'd just assume, since the house was empty except for us, that it might have been turned off or something. And then it hit me. I wasn't cold because the room was cold. I had that weird, trembly, can't-get-warm feeling because I had another fucking fever. I put on pajama pants, socks, a shirt, a sweater, and a beanie, went downstairs and swallowed a couple of Advil, and came back to bed. A half hour later, I was wide awake, drenched in sweat, my fever broken into a million tiny droplets all over my body. I awoke the next morning, feeling 100% like shit. For the second time in as many dates with Robbie, I had come down with... something. I tried to put a good face on it. We slept in, sleeping slash dozing seemed to be possibly the best thing for whatever it was that I had. Finally, around 11 we decided we should try and find some food, and so we got dressed and headed into town. At a cafe, Robbie ordered a full English breakfast and scarfed it down. I ordered two eggs over easy and toast and could barely eat a thing. Even worse, I felt barely there, like I was watching the whole thing on a movie screen from far away. What do you want to do this afternoon? Robbie asked. Want to go for a walk on the pier? I don't know if I'm good for much, I replied. I think I might just need to go and lie in bed, maybe binge watch some TV. What I wanted to say was, is there any way I could possibly interest you in a lazy day of lying in bed and watching television with me? But what I think he heard was, I need to lock myself away inside my sick room, get thee away! Or maybe he just felt, ew, gross. We walked back to my place. I apologized and said that I was sorry I wouldn't be able to be more entertaining, secretly, quietly hoping that he would say something like, don't worry about it, we can just hang out and watch TV. Instead, as we walked, he texted his friend in Cambridge, and by the time we got back to my house, he had made plans to drive up there for New Year's Eve. On a logical level, I understood. This was our second date, for Christ's sakes, and getting sick early on in a romantic endeavor is tricky. It strips away a lot of your shielding and shows a more raw but perhaps more authentic version of the person you actually are, before the roots of affection have properly set in. But also, I was sad. How else could I not feel like I was the one Robbie was getting stuck with? Worse, it wasn't just frustration at the situation I found myself in, but a strange kind of self-recrimination for having gotten sick at all. 
falling ill wasn't just a biological coincidence, it was a character flaw, a sign that I was weak. On a deeper level, there was also a desire to be wanted, even in my disgusting, sick state. That whatever I was offering Robbie wasn't actually compromised by my illness, even though, again, on date two, I absolutely was. That Robbie chose to leave makes total and complete sense. It would have been kind of crazy for him to stay, and it would have been crazy to hold it against him. But it would have been romantic as hell. We hugged goodbye, and I watched from my doorway as he walked down the street, got into his car, and drove away. I went inside to my bedroom and cried. Like a woman, I reported to Fatih. Ten minutes later, I went to the bathroom and puked my guts out, so I guess I was glad Robbie wasn't there to see that. I spent the remainder of 2015 in bed for the most part, with a couple of feeble jaunts outside. On New Year's Eve, I put in a dinnertime appearance at Nathan and Tara's, Nathan, bless his heart, drove to pick me up and drove me home. The partygoers made a valiant effort to try to get me to come watch the New Year's fireworks at the seafront, but I was spacing out. I rang in 2016 in bed with the covers up to my chin, bouncing back and forth between episodes of Making a Murderer and Broadchurch. Because apparently I can't get enough of murder, I said to Fatih. New Year's Day dawned gray and cold, and while I was feeling a little better, I still felt generally crummy, both shaking the last vestiges of illness and also just being bummed out about the great botching of the Robbie date. We hadn't texted much since he'd left. I noted somewhat resentfully to Fatih that when he did text me, he didn't ask how I was doing. But also, I was worried that he'd taken my illness either as a kind of melodramatic expression of disinterest or as a sign that I was cursed or broken— and either way was in the slow, unpleasant process of giving up on me. He fixed this sentiment on New Year's Day. Feeling better? He asked. Yeah, mostly I'm just upset at my body for ruining our date. Nothing ruined. I just hope you're doing all right. Thanks. Better, and looking forward to when we can hang out next. Definitely. You should come to Dorset and spend the night. Oh yeah? What happens at night in Dorset? Not much. But I think we can probably figure something out. Okay, sure. So I ended 2015 with a bit of a stumble. But 2016 was only a few hours old, and I already had a third date. An overnight third date. On the books with a guy I was pretty into. There's a Yiddish phrase, Der Mensch tracht und Gott lacht. Man makes plans, and God laughs. And wow, she must have really been stifling a big guffaw for what she had in store for me. Next time on Serial Dater. Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, 
Editorial help from Olivia Wolfgang-Smith, Fatih Ahmed, and Anna Marquardt. Bonus thanks to Anna, who provided the end credits music for this episode. You can find more of Anna's work at her website, www.annamarquardt.com. Music by Tongues. Go buy and listen to their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. For more information, check them out at www.tonguesmusic.com. Sam, Tim, and Joey, played by Alistair James Murden. Robbie, played by Matthew Hall. You can find links to more of their work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. There you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at SerialDaterPod. Email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. My flame, thou givest fever. When we kiss it, fever with thy flaming youth. Fever, I'm a fire. Fever, yea, I burn forsooth. You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, and offhandedly mentioning it at your weekly salons, or more effectively by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people find it. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking on the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Special thanks to Netanel Ganin, extra special thanks to Promdate for letting us use their music again, and, since they haven't emailed me yet asking me not to, another thanks to the US-UK Fulbright Commission. What a lovely way to burn What a lovely way to burn This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characteristics have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated.